Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, I tell myself with my whole heart, I will praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, I tell myself. And never forget the good things he does for me. You know, sometimes we, we come here to church to praise God and tell God how awesome he is. But I love how the psalmist says, I got to tell myself this too. Praise the Lord, I tell myself. With my whole heart, I'll praise his holy name. It's so good to come and worship, isn't it? Mm. Would you do me a favor? Grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, um, raise your hand and we'll bring one to you. We'll be in this word here in a second and make sure everybody's got a Bible. Again, raise your hand if you need one. The kids are being dismissed, third and fourth graders. Before we dig into God's word, okay, I got a quick question. You do not need to verbally answer this. You don't need to raise your hands, okay? How many of you are good with texting? Okay, don't raise your hands, okay? Some of you right now, you're replying to me. Well, right now, how about all those abbreviations? Okay, I, when I text, I try not to abbreviate. I try not to, okay? And that's basically because I don't know a lot of the abbreviations. Um, do you know there's like hundreds, if not thousands of abbreviations? Thousands is probably an exaggeration, but there are hundreds of them. A lot of them I don't know. I, was it, IDK? Is it, yeah, I don't know, okay? Um, JK, just kidding. Really, I know that one. Okay, so there's a lot of them. I just threw a few of them up on the screen there for you just to see, just a few, okay? Some of these I did not know. Like, CWOT is a complete waste of time. Now, around our house, we, we say a WOM, it's a waste of money, okay? But th- this was a new one to me, okay? Um, the, the POS, which I thought meant an abbreviation for position, because as, as a coach, you know, it's like, what's your, what's your POS, what's your position? No, that means that there's a parent over your shoulder. I didn't know that, okay? Or the uh, PIR, parent in the room, I thought it was an abbreviation for, like, pirates or something, I don't know. Um, so look at some of the, I thought a lot of those were pretty good. There's so many more and there's some you can't even put up there, okay? But, um, so I looked at these and I think, wow, um, I, I don't get it. Matter of fact, but it's a generational thing, right? I'm going to ask you as a church, be praying for our next youth pastor. We've got, we had a stack of resumes come in. They all came flying in with, and we're sorting through them and sifting them down. And there was actually one or two that came through with a lot of these abbreviations, I mean, this is a, you're sending in your cover letter and a resume, and I'm like, an, uh, 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 very generational, I get it. <laughs> okay, but anyway, um, but be praying that we have good discernment in who's going to be our next youth pastor. There's a lot of great candidates. I'm telling you, they're coming from everywhere, California, Missouri, uh, Florida, uh, Minnesota, uh, Texas. So it's like, wow, um, praise God that we have a... Um, a great selection to choose from, but we want to make sure we're doing this God's way. So pray for us. But anyway, so these abbreviations, there was a time when Jenny and I were talking to someone and they said, LOL, in the middle of the conversation. They didn't text it. They were just, ah, LOL. And I'm thinking, and it didn't fit really where they were saying. And I was thinking, okay, isn't LOL laugh out loud? And like, no, it's lots of luck. And I was like, it is? And I was confused. Now, there may be a debate, and some of you might have a different LOL out there. I don't know. But I thought, you know, we sort of chuckled for a moment thinking, how confusing this can be at times. I mean, the communication thing. And I'm not a big advocate of of making changes. I'm not going to go out there and get all social media big on everybody and say, we're going to change LOL, and we're going to change it to this. If I could, I would maybe change it to live out love, the love of God. Wouldn't that be a good LOL? Live out love? And I put a little, I put a little T behind it like a cross. Okay. 
And then everybody's thinking, what's the T stand for? Live out, love, Terry? I don't know. Um, Tom? No. That's a cross. So that's why we can't change it because people get even more confused than what they are now, right? But as I was thinking about this, we've been talking as we come here Sunday morning about reconciling relationships. A lot of conflict in relationships, right? How does God want us to solve these conflicts? And, and, And part of Loving somebody is loving them with the love of God. You've got to live out your love with the love of God. Our love alone will not reconcile relationships. It's a good start. But without the love of God working through us, it's hard to fix relationships. Because we've we've been learning a lot of stuff, haven't we? We've been learning about how we're supposed to um, not judge people unfairly. How we should make sure we take a good look at our own self first. We probably bring some of the conflict to it, don't we? Learning to forgive, learning to apologize, learning to ask for forgiveness, to grant forgiveness. It's doing all we can to reconcile the relationship. It's, it's, it's L-O-W, a lot of work, right? That's a new one, right? But it's worth it, right? Isn't it worth it to try to reconcile these relationships in a godly way? Because isn't that what we want, peace in our relationships? God commands us to do it, doesn't he? So let's get into God's word and see what he has to say. So grab your Bibles, open them up to the book of Luke, chapter 10. Luke, chapter 10. And in your, if you, again, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. Luke is in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. Luke, chapter 10. We're going to be starting in verse 25. It's a great conversation that Jesus has with a... A religious law expert, we'll call him a lawyer, of, uh, of God's word. We're going to start in verse 25. We'll read together. One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him. Do this, and you will live. And the man wanted to justify his action, so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? So in this story, we have an expert in religious law. He is a a lawyer who stands up, and he test Jesus with a question. Now, some commentators believe he wasn't trying to trick or trap Jesus. He was testing him, but maybe it was really a sincere question he had. He wanted to know, again, Jesus, how do I get into heaven? Tell me about eternal life. How do I get there? Well, I love what Jesus does. Jesus looks at this lawyer, this expert in law, and he directs him to the law. Aren't you an expert in law? Yes. Okay. Then what do the commandments of God, the law, have to say about this subject? We'll put it back on you. So I love it. How does Jesus answer questions? Usually with a question or a story, right? So that's what he does. So what does the law of Moses have to say? So again, in other words, if you're asking a question that can only be answered or granted by God, what does God say? What does this command say? So it's a little humorous, a little clever of what Jesus does. And looking at a lawyer who should know the laws, right? 
What does the law say, Mr. Lawyer? Well, what does he say? You must love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, that's great. That's awesome. Good answer. Good answer. You're smart enough to know it. Good answer. But knowing it is only part of the solution. Living it is the complete answer. Now, we get this from school, don't we? A lot of our students today, what do they do? They go into a class, memorize, memorize, memorize. So when the test comes, they can just spit it back out. They maybe did not digest it. They were just trying to remember it. They wanted to know it. But you got to do more than just know it. you got to be able to apply it. And I often felt like as a student, I might know something, but if I could apply it, it's better. When I worked um, growing up on the farm with my dad, my dad would do stuff. The best way for me to learn things was to go do it. He wasn't like, this is how you drive a tractor. He said, get on the tractor, let's go. And you learned. But then there were times when dad would be underneath the combine fixing it, and he's like, just working away, and I'm standing there, and I was really bored. He's like, dad, if you don't need me, I'll go do something else. I'm like, all right. And I would go do something else. Where should I have been? I'd, I've never learned how to fix a combine or work on, on the engines. Why? Because I never climbed under there with my dad. I could have known how he did it, but I didn't because I was too bored with observing and I did not want to get my hands all greased up. Had I watched and then acted upon it to apply myself, I would have had a new skill. And Jesus is sitting there saying, hey, you know the command. Good job. But can you act on it? It's like us coming to church. We walk into this building. You can walk into any church. You can claim to know God. You can have the Bible in your hands, right? And say, I'm a Christian. But here's the thing. If you're not living out God's word, then are you really a follower of Jesus Christ? Anybody can call themselves a Christian. Anybody can walk in here. But if you're not living out God's word, are you really a Christian? Are you really a follower? Or are you just a fan of it? In the Bible, do me this. Turn to the book of James, chapter 2. You might want to keep something there in the uh, book of Luke. We'll come back to that. Turn your Bibles to James, chapter 2. James, chapter 2. The brother of Jesus is writing this, and, and again, he's talking about our faith, but he does something here that's, that's incredible. He says, it's just going to be faith. Let's talk about our works, too. James says this, beginning in verse 17. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it's dead and useless. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds, but I say... How can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, you believe that there's one God, good for you. Even the demons believe that, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? You might want to underline that in your Bible. Faith without deeds, good deeds, is useless. Think about this. I've got a phone, but if I have no battery, it's useless. It doesn't matter if I carry this around. It all it does is like make me look like I'm up to date and being socially connected with people or like, hey, I've got a phone. Oh, wow, yeah. It doesn't work. I don't have a battery. Like, well, then it's useless. Yeah, but it makes a lot of people think that I've got a phone. We can do the same thing with our faith. You can act and look like a Christian all you want, but without the Spirit of God in your life, Without putting it into action, 
It's useless. Faith and deeds go together. And James tells us that. So it's clear here that faith includes loving God, putting it into action. Is what Jesus was getting at with this lawyer here. So what it means to what does it mean to love God? Because I mean that's what he's saying. Well, I gotta love God with all my heart and all my strength and all my soul and my mind, and he's throwing these all things out there. And I'm gonna say right now, that's impossible to do. I don't care if you're the best Christian in this room. That's impossible to do. I mean, there's so much confusion about what it means to love your neighbor and who's your neighbor and all that. We'll get to that, but what about loving God? Uh, to, to love your neighbor as yourself, what does that mean? Basically this, as much as I would care for myself and love myself, I would do the same with my neighbor. I'm going to take care and concern for them in the same way. Now, this lawyer who's talking to Jesus, he, he possibly thought to himself, hey, I've obeyed that first command really well. I do love God with everything that I have. But when it comes to it, he wasn't. Now, some of you are saying, Rex, didn't you preach last week on unfairly judging people? Aren't you judging this guy? Okay, that might be a fair assumption on your end. But here's the thing. I know he doesn't love God 100% of the time in every situation. Because why? Because none of us can. It's impossible to love God with every single thing we have 100% of the time. Because something is always trying to occupy our hearts for God. Something's always distracting us, taking away from that moment. And we might have those quick moments where, oh, I'm giving God everything. Yes, but how long does that last? When we really consider what the words mean, then who among us have loved God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength? Who in here can say that? So easy to be distracted, isn't it? And we say, and here's the... Here's the this might be a good tester right here, okay? Luke, I'm sorry, 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, 21. It's on the screen. It says this. If somebody says, hey, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person's a liar. For if you don't love people you can see, how can you love God whom you cannot see? And he's given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. So even if I'm up here and say, man, I love God, I love God. What about that guy? I really don't like him. Matter of fact, I don't like him at all. Then you're a liar. Because if you love God, you're called to love that person. I don't have to be their best friend, but I got to love them. And that's hard. So believing that he has the first commandment covered, as this lawyer thinks he does, he moves on to keeping the second command. And he's thinking in his mind, okay, so let's define neighbor. Who's my neighbor, Jesus? I've got the first command down. I love God. Yep, yep, yep. And I got to love my neighbor. But who's my neighbor? David uh, Guzik, he's an author and commentator. He says this. The Jews in Jesus' day believed that, if you, that you had to love your neighbor. But it was also taught among them that it was your duty to hate your enemy. That's what the Jews were taught. Love your neighbor hate your enemy. So it all depended on who your enemy is and who your neighbor is. So he asked Jesus, what do you mean by neighbor? I need to make sure it's not my enemy, right? How does Jesus answer the question? Well, how does Jesus always answer questions? Usually with another question or a story. So he tells this story. 
Instead of using words, he gives us the story. He gives us a picture of words put together, strung together so we can better relate. So let's look and see what that story is all about. Look in verse 30 with me. Picking back up, Jesus replies with an illustration. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes and money. They beat him up. They left him half dead beside the road. I'm going to pause there for a second. Get this, please. They didn't give him a bloody lip and a black eye. They left him for half dead. Dire situation, right? So look at verse 31. By chance, a Jewish priest, yea, a godly man, comes along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant, which would be a Levite, walked over, looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt deep pity. Kneeling beside him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with medicine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him on to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two pieces of silver and told him to take care of the man. If his bill runs higher than that, he said, I'll pay the difference the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits, Jesus asked. So Jesus tells a story. And everybody can relate to the story because this is an actual place. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho existed. And it existed with a lot of crime and robbery. In just a short distance of 20 miles, there's an elevation drop of 3,600 feet. That's a big drop, which means there's a lot of turns and twists, a lot of rocky road, great places for people to hide behind and then jump out and attack people. The road was actually nicknamed the Red or the Bloody Way. So it wasn't surprising to Jesus' listeners as he's sharing a story about what's going on. And they're thinking, you never travel alone. Travel in a caravan, travel with a group, but never travel alone because that is reckless and foolish to do. So this man really only had himself to blame, didn't he, for what happened? But he's laying there half dead beside the road. Let's forget about why it happened. He's there. Here's the situation. What do you do? First one that comes by is a priest. He sees, Jesus, he sees the, the beaten man laying there, half dead. What does he do? Nothing. Then the temple assistant, a Levite, another godly man, comes walking along. What does he do? Nothing. Again, these are narrow roads. There's not like they didn't see him. Oh, they saw him. They chose to walk on by. This story is right in tune with what had been taking place in modern day because religious leaders, Levites, um, the um, uh, temple assistants, these, these men of God would have been taking those roads. They would have been walking through there. You would expect, though, mercy, right? Comfort, right? Show some kind of pity, please, right? You're godly men. But they must have had some kind of excuse because they did not. And don't we all have excuses? I mean, let's put ourselves in this situation. What would you have done? And, and I'm not expecting everybody in here to say, oh, I would have pulled over. I don't know if I would have. In the back of my mind, I could have been thinking, hey, this could be a setup because they did that. They would have somebody laying there so you would go over and help them and then their buddies would attack you. That might have been going on in the back of my mind. What other excuses? Maybe, um, hey, I, got, I need to get to the temple. I got services I got to get to. They'll understand. I got to go do my duties for God. So I don't have time for this. 
Maybe I need to get home and see my family. Maybe I'm thinking, you know, somebody else could probably help this man. I know there's a group of people behind me that are probably more well-equipped than me. They'll take care of this, right? Maybe it's, you know what, if I'm going to go serve at the temple today and I get this man's blood on me, I'll be considered uh, unholy and I can't go in there and do that so I can't get anything on me. Or I don't know first aid, I don't have anything to help him with, right? I'm the only person. This job is way too big for me. I can pray for him. I'll just keep walking I'll pray for him. Or maybe, you know, he brought it on himself. This is a dangerous road. He should have known better. His fault. Deal with it. He never asked for help. I think I heard a couple groans, but it wasn't, help me. Okay, so I'm just going to keep on moving, right? All kinds of excuses, right? And, and here's the thing. I have them. You probably have them too. We, we have various excuses at times why we won't love our neighbor. But Jesus continues the story, and he shocks them with a third person that comes along, a Samaritan. A Samaritan. Now, generally speaking, Jews and Samaritans did not get along racially or religiously. So the, the culture gave the Samaritans plenty of reason to not like the Jew. That Samaritan that's walking could look at that Jew and say, no, 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 I get it. You're a purebred. I'm of a mixed race. You don't like me. And you treat me horrible, so why should I help you? He could have said that, right? One commentary said this. Some rabbis taught that a Jew was forbidden to help a Gentile woman who was in distress giving birth. Because if they succeeded and she gave birth, all they did was help one more Gentile come into the world. Wow. See, they often thought the Samaritans were worse than the Gentiles. But instead of passing by, what did that Samaritan do? The Samaritan loved him sacrificially. He didn't have to be asked. He saw the need right in front of him. He knew he needed to do something, so he gave of his resources of his time. He, he took the wine, which contained alcohol, and used it maybe as an antiseptic to help clean the wounds. He used the oil to soothe the, the soreness of what was going on in this man's body. And he put him on his own animal, his own donkey, and said, this is where I would ride, but I'm going to put you on it, and I will walk the rest of this journey. Not only did he bandage him and take him to a place of safety and comfort, he paid for the man to be taken care of for the next couple of weeks. Two denarii, which is two days wages, that's a lot of money, at the place that he dropped him off, could have taken care of him for two, maybe three weeks. And even if they ran out of money, he said, I'll come back, I travel through this way often, I will even pay for more if I have to. It's amazing, isn't it? What a great story. So let's apply the story, right? Let's start wrapping this up. We're going to apply the story. Look at verse 36. Now, which of these three would you say is a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? Jesus asked. Okay, so let's, let's apply this. The man replies, the one you, who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes, I'll go do the same. So church, you want to apply this? You want to LOL? You want to live out the love? Okay. How do you do this? You show mercy. How do you show mercy? Well, according to the thinking of the day, the priest and the Levite were neighbors to the man who had been beaten. Were not, I'm sorry, were not neighbors to the man who had been beaten. They were supposed to be neighbors, but they didn't act like it. The lawyer knew the true neighbor was. That was the Samaritan. But he couldn't even bring it out of his mouth. He's like, so who was... Who is the real Samaritan? Who is the one that helped? In this story, Jesus says, who was a neighbor to the man attacked? 
he couldn't even say it. He couldn't even say Samaritan. The one who showed mercy. Yes, that'd be the Samaritan. Correct answer. Jesus allowed the story to answer the man's question and guide his direction for what he should do next. I am to love my neighbor. My neighbor is the one who others might consider their enemy. My neighbor is the person who is in front of me right now at the need. That is my neighbor, according to what God is showing us through his word. You know, growing up, again, I grew up on a farm. My closest neighbor was a half mile away, one way, and quarter of a mile the other direction. Those were my neighbors. Somebody said, hey, go check on the neighbors. You knew there's only probably one or two that you're going to check on, right? You knew your neighbors. You could borrow a cup of sugar from them. They kept an eye on your place when you were gone. You kept an eye on their place when they were gone. Today, we live in a different neighborhood. Our neighbor is a person right next door that can probably hear us when our windows are open and we're yelling. And same with them, right? Our neighbors is the one that we throw stuff in their yard. They throw stuff in our yard. and We, we use each other's uh, tools or whatever, okay? Today, our neighbors are the people that we wave at. We're like, ah, I don't even know their name, but ah, you know, we, we just, that's our neighbor, you know? We, we don't know, even know some of the people, but they're our neighbor. True, right? But the story Jesus tells reminds us that being a neighbor is not a matter of proximity or familiarity. Neighbor is not just the person who lives next door or the person you know by name or you borrow their tools. The neighborhood is anywhere mercy and love are to be shown. That's your neighborhood, and your neighbor are the people that need God's love, and you need to love them. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to run after every time you see somebody's hurt and needs bandage, and you're going to run right after them and say, I'm going to, I'm going to fix this need right away. Because when we read this story, the Samaritan didn't go out and start a hospital and just go out and keep continuing to bring people in. In that moment, in that time, he knew God was saying, take care of them, and he did. The question for us is, are you ready to show love to others? If you have something you want to give, you can give it. Whether it's money, whether it's clothes, whether it's food, if it's material, you can do it. If you don't have that, you can still be a neighbor to somebody. You can still love somebody as your neighbor. You can still love with God's love to that person by serving, by praying, by just being there for them. There are many ways to show God's love. We see one way in this particular story. Now, here's a way we can do it. We can serve people. Now, I don't want to get in trouble here, okay, um, by, by using a couple examples here. So here's my example. Trust me on this one, okay? Um, there's sometimes I'm watching the news. As I'm watching the news, I get frustrated with the, the news about what's going on in our world or maybe our government. And I get mad with the politics at times. I get mad. I'm like, why can't you guys just work together instead of, arguing and fighting. You ever, I, I don't want any amens. I don't want you to get in trouble. But, I, but you all know what I'm saying, right? You, you look at our government and say, this just work together. Okay. And I thought, I thought about this. What if our government worked like Chick-fil-A? Okay. Hang with me on this one. Okay. Okay. I know I'm going way off course here, but here's the thing, because right now I'm going to reverse it. First of all, what if Chick-fil-A worked like our government? Okay. Now this is what would happen. Okay. First of all, we wouldn't like it because they would, one person would take the order and they would turn around and give it to another person. That person like, I don't like what you're giving me, so I'm going to give my own order. And they give it to the cook and the cook's like, I'm not going to fix that. I'm going to fix something else. And they give it to the other person who boxes it up and they hand it to them. They say, it's not my fault. 
Okay? Now, that's, that's what would happen if Chick-fil-A worked like the government. And again, I don't want to knock our government. We are supposed to pray and respect authority. Amen? So we need to pray for our government. But I get, I get upset when I think, as a united nation, we should be working together. Okay? So I get frustrated with that. So a lot of my prayers every day is, Lord, help us to work together. We get, please pray for our president. Pray for our people in Congress. Pray for our government leaders. They're in authority. We need to pray for them. Okay? But then I thought this. How about this? How about our government or, yeah, work like Chick-fil-A, where it's like, how can I serve you? Let's work on that. Here's what we need to do. Got it? Got it. Great. Hey, thanks. Here you go. It was my pleasure. Wow. Okay. Wouldn't that be awesome if that's the way we functioned? Now, take that outside of Chick-fil-A. Take that outside of the government. What if God started doing that with our relationships, with our relationships with one another? There's a situation where I could be very stubborn and say, I want to be right here. But what if instead of me wanting to be right, I looked at the conflict and said, how can I serve you? And then I take my best efforts and go to God and say, God, I need help in resolving this conflict, and I want to help. And God says, this is what you need to do. And you go back and say, I'm going to serve you, and I'm going to give this of myself to you. It is my pleasure. What if that's maybe how God wants to work? Like I said, don't take that example as the best example. But as I look at what we're supposed to be doing in our relationships, we're supposed to be living out our love. By how we help others, how we serve one another, how we pray for one another. Do you remember when Christ was on the cross and they hurled insults at him? How many times have you been misspoken? How many times have people said bad things about you? How many times have people hurled insults at you? And what do you want to do? You want to lash back, don't you? You want to just say, oh yeah? Well, this is what I think about you. It's so easy to retaliate. First Peter chapter 2. Verse 21 to 23 says this. For God called you to do good, even if it means suffering, just as Christ suffered for you. He's your example, and you must follow his steps. He never sinned, nor ever deceived anyone. He didn't retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He left the judging to God. He simply prayed to his Heavenly Father and said, God, you got this. I'm not demanding an apology from people who are hurling the insults at me. I'm not seeking revenge at those people. I am going to give my life for them. That was what Jesus did. Three days later, Jesus rose again victorious, and truth wins out. Amen? Truth always wins out. Live out love by praying for those who are hurting you. Because obviously they are hurting, aren't they? Remember, living out love doesn't get us into heaven, okay? That's what, that begins with this religious leader saying, or lawyer saying what? How do I experience eternal life? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, right? Love others as you would love yourself. But that isn't, that isn't how you get into heaven. You get into heaven because of the grace of God who sent his son Jesus Christ to die for us. And when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, believing that he died for us, we ask for forgiveness, he takes away our sins, and he gives us his Holy Spirit. His Spirit allows us to live out this love better than we could ever do on our own. Love them. Who's my neighbor? Anyone I'm running into. That's all of you. You're all my neighbors, according to this 
It's my family, it's my spouse, it's my kids, it's my coworkers, it's my friends, it's my teammates, it's this church, it's the waitress or waiter that I run into, it's the person at the clerk at the when I'm checking out, it's the person who pulls out in front of me. It's my neighbor. I love them, right? That's why we need the help of God in doing this. Because we can't do it on our own. I'm gonna ask the worship team to come up. As the worship team's coming up, I shared um, a devotional with, uh, with all of you this past week and uh, the church email. And I just want to reference that real quick. And, and for those of you who didn't read it or didn't see it, it's, it's basically this. We recently went um, miniature golfing as a family. But we went, it's called Glow Golf. It's glow-in-the-dark. The black lights, everything is glow-in-the-dark. Our, our golf balls were glow-in-the-dark. Our, our putters had um, stripes on to help us see them. And it was, it was pretty, pretty incredible. But at, at about every other hole, there was a charger. You would take your golf ball, and you would stick it in a hole, and it would run through this thing, charge it, and drop it onto the green for you, and it's glowing a lot brighter because it loses its charge, right? So you'd have to put it back in the charge, and okay, now I can go again. I was reading this past week in, in the book of Exodus, and, and I don't know, this is maybe the way God works with me. But in Exodus 34, it said this, talking about Moses, because Moses, when he went up on the mountain to meet God and get the Ten Commandments, he was up there for quite a while. He's up there for weeks. And when he came down, his face was shining. It was glowing. And it was so, so radiant. It was reflecting the radiance of the glory of God that he had to put a veil over his face. And, and as we read about that, it was, he was first, we think maybe because he was scaring everybody, right? Let me read this to you. Whenever Moses went into the tent meeting to speak with the Lord, he would remove the veil until he came out again. Then he would give the people whatever instructions the Lord had given him, and the people of Israel would see the radiant glow on his face. So he put the veil over his face until he returned to speak to the Lord. And I was, I was reading this, and I remember this story. It was like, yeah, it's like, every, it's like every time he met with God, his face would just glow because he'd been in the presence of God. And he would come out and see the people, and then he'd put the veil on because he didn't want to scare them, right? But, but then I read in 2 Corinthians 13, 3, that Paul said the purpose was to hide the diminishing glow on his face. He put a veil over his face so that the people of Israel would not see the fading glory of God. It was like, I've been with God, my face is glowing, but now it's starting to fade. And he didn't want people to see that. And so he would go back and to meet with God and God would give him what to share and his face would be glowing again. He'd come back out and I was thinking, it just reminded me so much of those golf balls. It's like, okay, I got to charge it up so I can see and it comes out, man, it's glowing. I'm ready to go and play again. But as I play, my glow leaves. I need to charge it back up so I can go again. And sometimes that's how I feel about our faith. I really do want to reconcile relationships with people and I hope you do too. I hope you want the best relationships you can have with people. But here's the thing. You need that charge with God on a daily basis. You need to get into his presence and let him put his glory upon you. And you reflect his glory. You radiate his love onto people. And if you're having a hard time loving people right now, you better get back into the presence of God and let him charge you back up. Because that's what we need. So we can love people with the love of God. Live our love, his love. Amen. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an awesome God you are.
We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity just to to come and worship you, to to get into your presence, to receive that glow and that radiance. But it's, it's not for our glory. Moses was so humble about it. He didn't get in your presence just so he could make a big deal with others. He got in your presence because he needed it. God, we need to be in your presence more often. Help us, Lord, through the work of your spirit then to love others, to love our neighbors, to love one another as we would love ourselves. God, we want to give this love of yours to other people, but we can't if we're being selfish. So God, in those relationships right now that we're being stubborn about, not wanting to fix, help us to put our selfishness aside. Help us to humbly take a knee and say, you know what? God, I I can help restore this through your love. Not by our own power, but through you. And we ask for your help in doing that. Lord, we love you. We want to love you even more with all of our heart all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. So God, help us to do that. And then God, help us love one another. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.